everybody. This is Patrick Attaway, and this is Demise of the Podcast, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, Zev Good's writing. And we are finishing up his book, All About the Benjamins. Now, of course, I only got through small sections of his book in the first two episodes, and I will not be actually finishing the book today. I'm just going to be doing a final episode on it. We're going to go over the character Joel coming out and sort of his unfortunate way of coming out because it drives a schism through his family. And what I hope is that after listening to these three episodes, if you haven't read the book already, you're going to go out and you're going to read it and support Zev Good because not only is he a friend of mine, he's also a fantastic writer. So... My friendships have a way of fizzling out over time. And I can't really say whether or not Zev and I will be friends forever. I'd love to. I think he's a lovely, lovely, lovely man. And the whole thing about it is this is a good book. So regardless of my relationship to Zev, I recommend it. And I didn't record an episode on Saturday as I do usually, but I've had an erratic schedule all along, if you pay attention to the podcast. I haven't really felt like doing it this weekend. I thought about taking a weekend off, but I suppose now would be as good a time as ever to vent a little bit. I don't even have a glass of water with me, so I might lose fuel in the middle of this and have to get up. But before we get into the book, I'm going to do the typical housekeeping I finished my third novel, which has yet to be titled. The folder itself is just called New Trinity. It's another book in the Trinity series, which I didn't intend to be a series when I first started it. I didn't even know it would be a series when I published the first one this year in February, Demise of the Trinity. And uh, Price of the Trinity was not really intended to be a part of a series. It was supposed to be... uh, a different novel with some of the same characters, if you will. Kind of like Brett Easton Ellis. But I'm not as good as Brett Easton Ellis. I'm not as creative as him. Um, I don't know. Maybe some of you will disagree. He, oddly enough, does not get much love in the hashtag writing community. I don't really know anyone else who, who likes him as much as me. Now, there are people out there who do. Don't get me wrong, but... I don't really have any friends who are huge Brett Easton Ellis fans. And yet he is my writing idol. And I've probably talked about him plenty in past episodes, but uh, Price of the Trinity is coming out in September, just so you're aware. I didn't talk about it in the last two episodes. And September is coming closer and closer every day, so I have to promote the book, even though... My greatest fear is that people will read it and not get it, rather than people not reading it at all, honestly. And I've talked to some people about that. I talked to my friend Katie about it yesterday, and she says, I think people will like it regardless of how you feel. Because I had certain expectations when Demise came out. I thought that um, people would, the few people who would read it would, lambast it and there's been a little bit of that and that doesn't really bother me 
the idea of someone, a few people coming out and lambasting it and then no one else reading it because they're afraid to, well, that is scarier than a few people hating it and then a bunch of people reading it and liking it. So, yeah. These are all fears that we writers have, I guess. But uh, me in particular, since I write transgressive material, and I didn't start out wanting to do that when I was writing as a kid, but after reading American Psycho, man, that, that changed everything. I was 17 years old, and I had just seen the movie, American Psycho, when I was probably 16. I saw a lot of things around that age that formed me as an artistic person, um, especially David Lynch films, Hayao Miyazaki films. I saw him much earlier than that, but it's around the same time. And we tend to hold on to the things that we loved in the past. And I don't think that David Lynch is a perfect director. He's made some perfect movies. Um, I've probably expressed my um, doubts about the third season of Twin Peaks in the past. I don't think it's completely great. I think there are parts of it that are great. And I'm not a huge fan of Inland Empire. That was his last film. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but I only watched it the one time. I've also only seen Elephant Man one time, but I really like Elephant Man, as I recall. I've seen Eraserhead countless times. I haven't watched it since my wife and I first first watched it back in 2016 when we were first dating. But these are all things that matter to me. And I wanted to create something that was akin to the things that I liked. And what I like happens to be slightly transgressive. If not full-on transgressive, like American Psycho, or even video games that I play like Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto was a huge influence on me. I'm of that generation. So why wouldn't it be? There are some people who may not get it. They may wonder how a video game could influence your writing. But there have been times where I had a character that I was stuck on, or I didn't know what to do next, and I would open... Grand Theft Auto on my PlayStation and ideas would come because for those of you who are unaware, Grand Theft Auto is an open world game. So you can do pretty much whatever you want and go wherever you want within the map. And you're not really hampered by typical video game rules. So I did the same thing when I was younger, though. I would play Mario on my Game Boy, and it was a port of the Nintendo Entertainment System, NES, Mario game, and I would daydream. And my imagination would make that game appear bigger and greater than it was. And that's a part of my childhood imagination I wish I could reclaim. And I admit to playing with toys, even in my teenage years, and I have a drawer full of toys and as a 28 year old man I would have no problem pulling them out if I had a, an issue with a character or something just to visualize something but we all have our methods we all have things that we do and I'm rambling so uh, we're about to get into the book after I get a glass of water and my wife no doubt asked me to come into the living room and I have to tell her no I'm recording a podcast I've been in a bitchy mood this weekend. 
and it I don't know what it is honestly part of it is diet I have been trying to improve my health through a diet and so I only eat kind of carby things on the weekends so that might be part of it the fact that I'm cons- yesterday I'll put it to you this way yesterday I had a breakfast that was more of a lunch so gosh what did I have uh, I had some chicken and a few tater tots not a lot not a lot but a few because my wife wanted some so I made her some and then for lunch around three in the afternoon we had a pizza I hadn't had a pizza in a while and then for dinner I had a whopper and large fries, a double whopper and large fries, mind you. Now, Friday I had some ice cream. Today I feel like everything would be fixed by some ice cream, honestly. And my stomach's still bothering me from pizza. That's why I don't eat it very often. And my dad has diabetes. Maybe I have diabetes. And his experience with diabetes culminated in some mental health issues too so i wonder if that's part of the problem frankly i'm afraid to go to the doctor and find out and you may say patrick you need to go to the doctor and get checked out it could save your life well if you're in my position you don't really give a shit so i'm just in a grumpy grouchy curmudgeon mood i'm not pissed off at the world i'm just not into it right now which is why i didn't run a record yesterday And I haven't been in a bad mood the whole time, but, you know, there are things that I am aware of, like how I can be a jerk sometimes. Not on Twitter. I don't care about Twitter, but, I mean, to the people I care about, we can all be jerks to the people we care about. It seems like, in a sense, when we're behind closed doors, sometimes we're bigger assholes to the people we love than the people on the outside who don't really matter as much. But it's like we can show that side to the people we love, too. And my wife works a job where she has to be kind of happy and sunshiny all day. And then when she comes home, she can take off the mask and be herself. And sometimes it's not always pretty. But, you know, I'm her husband and I deal with it. And she has to deal with me. And the the, really the culmination of my grouchiness is that I'm sitting hunched over my laptop trying to read old internet posts about guitar because I've been obsessed with guitar lately and I'm in my own head and then she says, Bunny, come over here and watch this TikTok with me. I'm like, no. Yeah. So it's not so bad, but it's not like we're throwing each other against walls, but it's not great either. Just because I'm grouchy. Sometimes she's the grouchy one, but... I don't know why I'm rationalizing this other than trying to figure it out myself and having a microphone in front of me might help, but I'm going to go get a ginger ale because of my stomach and I will return to talk about all about the Benjamins by Zev Good. Joel woke first the next morning, sat up in bed, and groaned at the sight of Kent. Sleep on his side, one freckled shoulder exposed. Of course, he remembered everything. He hadn't been that drunk. 
He recalled Ken asking if they wanted to go through with it and if it was actually what Joel wanted, and he recalled answering in the affirmative to both. He also remembered thinking he was an idiot too, and while he was saying yes, he should have been saying no, but he had been drunk enough that reasoning with his own desire was impossible, and throughout, he told himself he should say no, and even then, he didn't make Kent stop, and he didn't stop himself, and now he regretted it. So, when I was a kid, our president, Bill Clinton, got in trouble for sticking his finger in Monica Lewinsky. Now, I have a few things I could say about that, especially given the, the, the era of Me Too lately. Um, because people kind of pick and choose who they want to protect. And I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. Bill Clinton's a piece of shit for what he did. Yeah, it was consensual, but did he deserve to be impeached for it? No. But if you take the position of a power dynamic and you see the relationship that he had with Monica Lewinsky where he was using her for sexual gratification, whether or not he actually had penetration penetrative intercourse with her not is beside the point if you watch the movie bombshell there's a scene where roger ailes is forcing margot robbie to pull up her dress for him to watch and see her underwear and once she gets to her underwear he says stop and he seems satisfied it's almost like he had an orgasm and there's an abuse of power in that that scene. And anyway, this was all to say that, for one thing, I want to pinpoint that this was a consensual thing between Joel and Kent. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm only bringing up Lewinsky, and I got sidetracked by the politi- political aspect of it. Um I was talking to my grandfather, and back then I heard everything through a filter with my mother, and she had basically told me that what Clinton did was wrong. And part of what made it wrong for my mother is that he cheated on his wife. So my grandfather said, listen to me. If you go into a room and you have a beautiful woman laying naked in front of you, chances are you're going to take it. Now, I don't know that I agree with that as a married man now, but I will say that there is a primitive desire within all of us. And with men, it has been shown that if you get a man to the point of orgasm, he will do and say anything you want him to so he can come. Okay? So, it's more effective than torture. That's all I'm saying. And if you're drunk and you're with someone, maybe, just maybe, you don't have the most logical perspective in that moment. And when 
you have something that you can take and enjoy yourself and derive pleasure of, well, even if you know there might be consequences, yeah, chances are you're going to do it. So, yeah, that opening paragraph to chapter four kind of says it all, really. Joel goes through with it. He potentially ruins his friendship with Kent, making it very awkward because he does he's not really sure if he's attracted to Kent in that way, but obviously he is because he did that, but I'm not going to say that. Whatever. <sighs> I already put my foot in my mouth with Clinton and Lewinsky, didn't I? Yep, did that. Kent was awake when he eased the door open to sneak back into the bedroom. He made a quick move to hide his nakedness and Kent laughed. So, we're being modest now, he asked, then stood, and turned to face Joel directly. Joel blushed. Well, I'm sober now. Kent pulled his boxers on, then his shorts. I see, he said, his tone curt. If it was said to make Joel feel bad, it worked. That's not what I meant, he said, but it, it was, really. He had been fully prepared to use drunkenness as an excuse, and now here he was, Kent, calling him on it, and he felt exactly the way he should feel, like a heel. It's okay, Kent said, and pulled his shirt on. Joel reached back around the bathroom door and grabbed his bathroom off the hook there. When he was covered, he felt better, more capable of having the discussion about what they had done. Look, I'm sorry. You asked? If it was what I wanted to do, and I told you it was, then we did it. I even thought that we should stop doing it while we were doing it, but I didn't say anything, so we kept doing it. He shrugged and stared at the rumpled bed between them. Kent held up a hand to silence him. Joel, relax. It's okay. But it's not, Joel said, and his voice annoyed him. It's going to get weird between us, and I don't want it to. He moved to run his fingers through his hair, felt like it was sticking up, and instead smoothed it. You're my friend, he said, and still could not meet Kent's eyes. You're pretty much the only friend I've got, and I need you to stay my friend because I need you to help me through all this. He waved his arm in an enormous circle, signifying everything about being gay in the entire world, he supposed. I should have said no. And I know that now. Hell, I even knew it then, but I didn't. And I, I can't lose the most important friend I've ever had just because I was drunk and emotional and horny. I just can't. I said it was okay, Kent said again. He made it sound so simple. Joel could finally look directly at him across the bed. But see, you say that so flippantly. Like, you say it's okay, and it sounds good, but I'm not sure if you mean it's okay or if you're just saying that to shut me up. He realized he was very close to tears, just like last night, and stopped. Yeah, I have done things that I regretted before. There was another episode where I kind of briefly talked about a one-night stand that I had years ago, and... The thing about it is, should I just tell the story again? 
because I don't know that I really told it very well. Like, here's it in a nutshell. Okay. Met a girl on a dating app. She was using older pictures of herself. So I didn't know that at the time. And when I saw her in person, when she invited me over the same night, um, she didn't look the same. I could tell it was her from the pictures, but yeah, I'd been kind of duped. But my mother raised me to be a gentleman, and I didn't want to just leave and be a jerk. And I went to her bedroom, and we talked. And I had no intention of staying the night, but she said, well, it's raining out, and you should at least stay until it's the storm or whatever is over. So I did. And she wanted to go to sleep and it would have been awkward for me to say, okay, well I'll leave now. And things happened. So yeah. Hmm. Ugh. The next day I woke up after barely sleeping at all, mind you. And I said, hey, I, I have to go. Um, and she had this look on her face like, oh, shit. And like I thought this was going well. And she knew. So when I left, she said, okay, see you later, I guess. And I never spoke to her again. Hmm. I still feel really cringy about that but we all do things that we regret even if they're done with good intentions it was all on the tip of his tongue and his mouth was open to speak when Adam's voice drifted up from downstairs dad they froze eyes wide with shock as they regarded one another across the bed Adam Joel mouthed it again Kent was confused. Who? My son. Why is he here? Kent mouthed back. I don't know. Then Joel recalled their discussion about Susan's garden the night before, and Adam's suggestion that he come by and see it in the daylight to assess its condition and what would be needed to restore it. Again from downstairs, Dad. Joel found his voice at last. Yeah, Adam, hey, I'll be right down. Okay, from Adam, and there was a certain tone to his voice that neither Joel nor Kent could quite identify. That happens a lot with Adam. Say, Dad, is, it, is somebody here? There's a van parked in the driveway. Kent hit his face in his hands, and Joel felt his knees buckle. His insides fluttered, and he thought he might vomit. So, these two gentlemen try to come up with a plan as to how this can go down without... Adam realizing that his dad is gay and had a guy over and they had sex. Well, here's the thing. There's a van parked outside and often Adam is dressed, well, not Adam, but Kent is dressed like a lumberjack or something, you know. So Joel could have come down and said, hey, uh, there's a guy looking at the air conditioning or there's a guy looking at the upstairs toilet, something like that. And then 
he could have said, I'll be right with you, Adam, and then escorted Kent out. There are so many different ways they could have covered this up. But these two ass clowns, (laughs) they come up with nothing. Nothing. Okay. I said I'd be here today, Adam said, to look at the garden. I know, I remember, I just didn't think it would be so early. It's ten o'clock, Adam pointed out. Oh. I didn't expect you to have company, and Joel thought he tested the briefest hint of a grin when Adam said it. See, Adam thinks that Joel has a woman over. A number of lies flashed through Joel's brain as he fumbled with the coffee maker. Kent was here to appraise some furniture Joel was thinking of. Selling on consignment. Sometimes I finish my sentences. He was taking a look at the house because Joel was considering selling. He was giving Joel his price on the set of Barcelona chairs in the study. See, these are things that could have been said. Instead, this is what happens. When Kent stepped into the kitchen, the rattle of keys signaled his appearance and eliminated any other option. Joel, I'm headed out. But I was just making coffee, Joel said, and turned from doing so. Here's the thing. Joel said that, and that kind of signifies a relationship, whether it be a friendship or a sexual romantic relationship with him and Kent. He wanted him to stay for coffee with Adam. Yeah. Had he not done that, maybe, maybe, just maybe, he would have gotten away with it. Had their lives been a sitcom, one about roommates, perhaps, one gay and the other straight, it would have been that scene where the straight roommate realizes that his bro has spent the night with someone and that someone is in the bedroom and the two roommates have met in the kitchen and things are awkward because the straight guy assumes it's a woman in the bedroom and the audience knows better. Yeah. When was the last time I saw a sitcom like that? God. Anyway. Adam laughed because he couldn't think of anything to say. He couldn't decide on any one emotion either. He was furious at them both. He was embarrassed for himself. He was ashamed for Joel. He wondered why he wasn't happy for his father. He felt betrayed and made a fool of at the same time. He couldn't find the appropriate words to articulate everything he was feeling in those seconds. Adam? Joel's voice came to him as if through a tunnel. Adam held up a finger for silence, maybe. Or for more time to process everything. He wasn't sure. Joel and Kent exchanged a look. No one moved. Nobody said a word. Behind Joel, the coffee maker gurgled and the coffee steamed into the carafe and the kitchen filled with the aroma. But still, no one moved or said a word. Adam straightened up, took a step back from the island, and said, I can't do this right now. He fished his keys out of his shorts and walked out, left the door open behind him. Joel and Kent blinked at one another. Kent was the first to speak. Are you going to go after him? Should I? Joel asked. I would, Kent said. So Joel went. 
Adam, he called from the carport. Wait. Adam was in his car. He did not wait. He turned the key and started the engine. Joel moved to stand by the driver's side, his hands in his pockets of his bathrobe. For the briefest mo- instant, I'm editing his own this, this great work as I'm going along. For the briefest instant, he worried that the neighbors might see him in his robe with no slippers, but that concern vanished once Adam spoke to him. Why would he care about that? How old-fashioned is Joel that he he's worried about his neighbor seeing him in a robe without slippers on? Oh, my. They're going to be judging him. I said I can't do this right now. He didn't bother to roll the window down. Well, you can't just run away either, Joel pointed out. Adam laughed again. There's a lot of laughing in this book. You mean I should stay and we should talk about it? That would be a start, Joel said. Adam thought about that for a second, then he shrugged, rolled the window down, and killed the engine. Okay, Dad, let's talk about it. I've been gay my entire life. How long have you been gay? Joel wasn't prepared for that question. He expected something else. He wasn't exactly sure what, but he knew it wasn't that question. Well, I I don't, I I mean, I guess my entire life, like you. Adam nodded, an exaggerated pantomime of processing this new information. So, what you're saying is, you were gay, but you married mom anyway, and you were gay the entire time you were married to her, and what that means is that you fucked around on her. Got it. He turned the key again, put the car into reverse, and spoke out the window to his father. See, that's what I thought when I saw a man come downstairs. I thought, oh my god, dad's gay, and he's fucking this guy. And I thought, hey, if dad's gay, that probably means he was always gay. So he probably fucked around with men while he was married to mom. And then I thought, man, that fucking sucks. So while my mother was dying, my dad was fucking guys because he's gay. Adam paused for a breath, then added, And that is what I meant when I said I couldn't do this right now. So I'm leaving, Dad. Move. I just don't want you to be mad at me, Joel said. Really? Adam rolled his eyes. Maybe you should have thought about that, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago. Uh, Well, here's the thing, Adam. I mean, I know that we're not always grateful for our existence, but had your father not lied about himself and gotten married, well, you and your sister wouldn't exist, and your nephew, Ethan, wouldn't exist. So there's something that positive came out of it all. Of course, I happen to feel that my parents should have never been together, and I shouldn't exist, but that's another story. In fact, there, this weekend, I wish I didn't exist. I could go into that, but I won't. Um, yeah. Adam doesn't get over it, by the way. There's a scene later on between Adam and Joel that's pretty intense, and Rhoda comes out and says, But your mother was sleeping with other men! And that really calls in the question whether or not Susan knew that Joel was gay. And then... If it really mattered if Joel was sleeping around with other men, what was their marriage if they were both 
sleeping around with other men. It was a platonic partnership. And marriage is more complicated than holding hands and being happy and having children. And obviously, in the case of Joel, um, if he wanted to get married again, he'd marry a man. Oh my goodness, wouldn't it be cute if him and Kent got together and got married? Oh my God. So, what analysis do I have to offer this final scene before we close out on All About the Benjamins by the brilliant Zev Good? Brilliant and handsome, goddammit. He's a handsome man, that Zev. Well, this book is... Uh, it's a lot to swallow, I'll, I'll give, give you that. And the whole thing with Zev and this book is... It's layered. And that scene itself has a few layers because you have to realize that yeah we kind of took Joel's side on this for a while but then Adam brings up a pretty poignant point if you will lots of poignant points in this book Adam realizes that his father not only slept with other men but his image of his parents together that was a sham so he has to deconstruct what his parents' relationship truly was. For someone like me, whose parents got divorced when I was three, well, it's pretty easy to pinpoint what my parents' relationship was like. But for someone who witnessed his parents be together for most of his life and most of their lives, well, it's a harder pill to swallow when you realize that you had this thing that in common with your father and you could never confide in it in fact your father encouraged you to hide it he encouraged you to date girls and now he wants to be free with it he wants to be open or at least ex move on with his life from a marriage that wasn't really romantic he also has to wonder whether or not Joel ever really loved Susan. Now, from my perspective, Joel loved Susan, just not in a romantic way. And you can love someone without wanting to have sex with them, believe it or not. So, it's, it's a lot to unpack. And I would love to be able to write that, really. Um, it's just... There's so much to it in those few pages. And Zev is one of the few writers I can say has this distinct style that makes you think. And it welcomes rereading, by the way. This isn't a book that you just read once and forget about. This is a book that you come back to. So I highly encourage you to go out and buy this damn book. Buy it on, on Kindle, buy the paperback, buy his first book, A Map of the World. Uh, I may cover that in another episode, but the, the issue with A Map of the World, as I said on Twitter to someone who told me to do it, um, it's a short story collection, so I would have to focus on a short story per episode. So it's a little bit different than a book. So, 
What are we going to be doing next episode? Well, we're going to get back into Bukowski. I think I will just go ahead and bite the bullet and get into Ham on Rye and get get through that train wreck of emotion right there. I was avoiding it for three weeks with this tremendous book, but now I have to go back and face my demons that I was avoiding. And then after Ham on Rye, we might get back into poetry. We might do a short story of Bukowski's, but I am going to stay true to my word, and we're going to get through most of the main Bukowski stuff. I may even double down and go over pulp in Hollywood. Who knows? But all I know is that when September comes, we're not going to be talking about Bukowski or anyone else anymore. We're going to be talking about me. We're going to be talking about Price of the Trinity. So thank you for listening. This has been Patrick Attaway. Happy reading. So many songs for you Only to never appreciate them Cried in the mirror As you left the room To resume life without me And every time I sing About us It seems I walk too soon But no one will ever love me As much as I hurt for you You only pushed it further I wish I could stop singing about you Though it seems I walked too soon And the tears seem to burn the worst When I remember the lies But forget the truth Cause no one will ever love me As much as I hurt for you Seems I walk too soon No one will ever love me As much as I hurt for you